0: I started this series last week, um, and I said right up front that my agenda for this series is that I want everyone who's not a Christian to become a Christian. Uh, so how's that for pretty broad, unrealistic, maybe even insensitive thing to say right up front. Uh, but I know traditionally churches kind of sneak up on you with that. All right. So and, and we're notorious. We're worse than used car dealers with the bait and switch thing because we, we know how to work that. So I'm just going to let you know right up front. Uh, where I'm going with this. So for those of you who are on the fence, for those of you who, you know, kind of maybe just dipped your toe in a little bit, for those of you who um, have grown up in church and left, for those of you who are thinking, you know, why would I even do that? I haven't given it any thought. My heart's desire is that you would come to the place where you accept the invitation of Jesus to follow him. If I were to have a conversation with you over coffee, and say, you know, hey, why don't you become a Christian? You'd probably have a great response to that. Uh, you could probably give me a list of reasons. In fact, um, last week we talked about some of that, and we talked about the list of reasons, the things that we might say if, if, if I were to say, well, why don't you become a Christian? Or if you were to say to some of your friends and family and co-workers, uh, why don't you become a Christian? And those things, the answer to that, those become obstacles. And one of your obstacles might be as simple as well why I mean what's the point why would I even I don't even care about that I hadn't even thought about it till you asked me the question it's not like I've been weighing it and going back and forth I've never even it's not on my radar screen maybe that's your obstacle could be suffering in the world could be your parents religion could be the exclusivity of Christ could be maybe you have an issue with the Bible all those kinds of things so if you're not a Christian, or maybe that friend or family member or coworker who isn't a Christian, you got your reasons why you're not a Christian, and maybe some of them are good reasons. But what I wanna do in this short series is basically kinda of say the same thing over and over again, and it's simply this, that if today you aren't a follower of Jesus, so you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, if you were to ever become a Christian, chances are you don't become a Christian because you've resolved your obstacles with God. You don't become a Christian because you get all your questions answered. Chances are you become a Christian because something will happen that'll take your big obstacles and will shrink them and something will happen to you that is very, very personal because Christianity is based on a relationship with Jesus and it is extraordinarily personal. That's generally how adults become followers of Jesus. I tried to illustrate that last week uh, by talking about why guys don't wanna get married. Remember that, that little dialogue, uh, or monologue I should say? They, wanna, they, they don't, wanna, you know, don't wanna give up their freedom, there's the whole commitment thing, they don't have enough money, what if I marry the wrong person? Remember all this stuff? And we said that even though guys don't wanna get married and they have all these good reasons, something comes along that shrinks our obstacles. And we said that what happens is that ultimately we fall in love with somebody. And it's no longer categorical. Marriage is, a, is categorical. Marriage is like a category, right? She isn't a category. She is a person and it gets really personal. And all of my big objections you know, to marriage, they didn't go away, they just got smaller. So what we wanna do here this morning and over the next maybe two more weeks is we wanna take some of the obstacles that you might have to becoming a Christian or that your friends and family and coworkers might have to becoming a Christian and instead of doing a series about why is the Bible true and why is there suffering in the world and what about miracles and other religions and the human family of origin and other Christians that you know and all their hypocrisy and judgmental attitude. And whatever your obstacle is, oh, we have done that. A few years ago, The summer and fall of 2015, we did a series called Big Hairy Audacious Questions, and we addressed some of those obstacles, but we're not doing that in this series. So it's there, it's on our media player, it's on our podcast, if you want to go that far back to 2015. So there's a place for the questions, but for today and for this uh, discussion, that's not really how a person becomes a Christian, so if I were to, in all of my uh, discernment and persuasive abilities, if I were to resolve all your obstacles this morning to the, to the best of my ability, give, maybe even give you books to read and articles to read and introduce you to people who had the same issues and podcasts to listen to, at the end of all those conversations, you might have more information you wouldn't automatically be a follower of Jesus. You just have more data in your head. You might be a little bit more informed, maybe a little bit more empowered in your own argument because maybe we didn't really address it to your satisfaction. So this is just a heads up in case this ever happens to you. If you're a person who's on the outside of Christianity for whatever reason, you had a bad experience in church as a kid, you prayed hard and God didn't answer your prayer, uh, whatever it might be, if, if you're, ever going to become a follower of Jesus, chances are it won't be by working through all the obstacles and objections. Something will happen personally that is so personal in nature that it will shrink your obstacles and it'll put them in the proper perspective. And you will carry, just like about every other Christ follower I know, you will carry some of those questions into your relationship with God because outside of Christianity, Christianity is a category. Like God's a category, but your heavenly Father, who's invited you to call him heavenly Father, he wants it to be personal. It's a little bit when I like when I hear people say. Maybe you've heard this, or maybe uh, you've said it. I've probably said it too, but it still bugs me when people say they're committed to their marriage. You ever heard that phrase? I'm committed to my marriage. She's committed to her marriage. Ever heard that? Well. Um, and maybe it's just me, but I don't want Alethea to be committed to my marriage. Right. I want her to be committed to me. Right. Marriage is like a category. Me? I'm a person. <laughs> and I want Alethea to be committed to me. And she wants me to be committed to her. So it's like when you hear people talking about having kids. It's especially funny when you hear uh, single adults talking about having kids, and they say things like, well, I don't, I don't you know, I don't think I even want to have kids. Or maybe I'll have one kid. And They're, they're talking about kids like kid is a, it's a category, fits on a shelf, nice and neat, because it's not personal yet. Or when you hear newlyweds talking about how many kids. Yeah, we're going to have kids. Let's talk about how many kids. We should just have one, or we should have two at the most. So just for fun, I made a list. And, and just so you know, we are going to get to the Bible in just a minute. Uh, <laughs> I made a list of reasons why people should, uh, I just have to let you know, first of all, I'm being extremely facetious, okay? So don't, re, don't respond negatively. So I made a list of reasons why people should only have one or two children, okay? You're like, you're like, anyway, this is my list, and uh, my parents had two kids, I had two kids, I know what I'm talking about, so, but I am, I am being quite facetious, so let me just grab my notepad here, and I'll try not to step in front of the speaker, Bill, sorry about that, um, let me get this up here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm going old school with paper. I'm sorry if you can't see this, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not that important, honestly. Uh, I got a bunch of notes on here from other things. We'll start right there, okay. So I'm gonna put these on the screen, and then we're gonna work on something here together. So I'm gonna throw this out there. Um, don't respond too aggressively, because I can't, my fragile uh, psyche can't take it. So let me just throw this out there. Uh, number one, if you have more than one or two kids, transportation is way more complicated. Okay, cause, so now you've got to, uh, oh, they can sit in the back seat. There are enough seat belts, technically, but they might have to touch each other's elbows. <laughs> Yo, you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay, especially those of you who grew up in the back seat of a car before car seats, and there were seven of you in the back seat, and you're all like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So you've got to buy an SUV if you can afford it, but most likely you're going to have to get, God forbid... A minivan, right. Some of us are secure enough in our manhood to drive minivans. <laughs> you, can't, you can't have a compact car and have three kids. That's torture on you, okay? So just saying, transportation. Number two, it becomes way more expensive to go from two to three. We're gonna talk about why. Well, number, the first thing that comes is the next thing on the list. Number three, housing. Housing is an issue now because somebody's gonna to have to share a room. You know the bunk bed thing, which sounds great, and they're, you go to the store and they got them all displayed and they look cute and stuff and innocent. Dude, my brother and I are still working through the, the therapy of that, okay? Because finally my parents are like, enough of that, we don't need a guest room, you, you're out of there, that's me. So, um, yeah, well, eventually somebody ends up sleeping in the basement, that's just how it works, right? Number four, eating out is a problem. You never get to sit in a booth again. Somebody's sitting on the end of the table with no leg room. Number five, travel. Ever been in a hotel room? Hotel rooms are designed for four people. Number six, this is a big one. Middle child syndrome. (laughs) How many of you are healthy enough to say, I'm the middle child? (laughs) Just like, I'm taking notes, hold on. (laughs) See how many people come to church to deal with their middle child issues? (laughs) If you have two kids, you have the firstborn who is always the standard. Right. I expected an amen somewhere. Right. Ben, you couldn't support me on that one? Come on now. <laughs> the firstborn is, is this, never mind. Then you have two, so you get the secondborn, and of course the baby is always perfect. Amen. There you go. I knew I'd get that one. But the middle child can be a problem because now the middle child isn't getting the attention for very long because there's the firstborn and they get all the attention for a little while, right? Then there's uh, the middle child, they get the attention for a little while and then the third one comes along and now it's the baby and it's so sweet and the middle child's like, hey, remember me over here, you know? And they kind of get lost and they, uh, that can be detrimental. So some of you married a middle child and you know this, this just follows them through life. So I've, <laughs> yeah. I've concluded that if you have more than two children, you are creating work for a counselor somewhere down the road, so <laughs> that's fine. Anyway, I don't wanna to go too far with that one. Number eight, um, I'm glad you're getting the spirit of it. Number eight, parental attention. Parental, at- or number seven, sorry, parental attention. Now you gotta to go to a zone, okay? Because with two, you're, it's man to man, you know, it's one-on-one, it's one two-on-two. One, on two, like, you got it. You can switch off. Everybody still gets all the attention they need. Got three kids. Now the kid's outnumber number you. Did you notice? And you're like, oh, darn it. I never thought about that. Too late now. You got to go to a zone. When you go to a zone, someone isn't getting enough attention. Number eight is the pairing up thing. You saw this happen if you were raised in a family with more than two kids. Man. There are days... <laughs> 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 there are days when... Two of the kids really connect, and the other one just doesn't feel like he even fits in the family, and this isn't just reserved for the last born, okay? It, t- it changes from day to day, and this, if this phenomenon. It's a new thing every morning. Um, it can do all sorts of psychological damage. So my point is, as far-fetched and ridiculous as this is, that we could debate and argue these things, But I don't know how much we'd accomplish, really. It's not really our point this morning. So um, I thought it would be fun to make another list. So this one's blank, and I thought it would be fun if you could give me, um, because I got you thinking now, because there's some things I didn't cover, that maybe you could give me some reasons uh, why people should only have two kids. And I'm gonna let you shout those reasons out to me here in just a second. But to help me with this, um, uh, Harry Lures, I didn't, uh, hi, you're gonna come help me with this, right? So come help me with this. Um, So Harry's coming, I'm gonna give him a marker which is dangerous, I, don't even, never, never, I, haven't, I haven't proofed his uh, handwriting. No, they won't see that, use that one. Um, so, yeah, just, yeah, okay. So, just before you shout out um, reasons why two children is enough, um, and because and, you're going to write these down, before we do that, uh, let me just ask you this, how many children in your family of origin? Uh, I have two full siblings and two half siblings. Wait, so, um, where are you in the birth order? I am the baby. Favorite. So the youngest of five kids? Yes. Okay, this just got awkward. (laughs) So, (laughs) sorry. So what makes us so awkward is that, no, you should not speak now probably because you'll never be able to recover from that. Uh, (laughs) um, What makes us so awkward is that no matter how many reasons we give Harry, why two is enough and three is a crowd, at the end of our discussion, it's personal now. It's personal for Harry, it's personal for his siblings, it's personal for his parents. So so what's happened? The discussion has moved from something that's categorical to something that's very personal. So in the same way, I'm just throwing this out there, and I went a long ways to make this illustration. When you think through the whole Christianity thing, this is how adults become Christians. The discussion moves from something that is categorical to something that is personal. So now I'd like to say thank you, Harry. Great job today, appreciate it. Thanks a lot, give Harry a hand, everybody. Good job, thank you very much. All right, good. That was just like we rehearsed it, good job. (laughs) And I'll move this out of the way so that I don't know if it's blocking anybody's view of my face, but we couldn't have that. Bill. Bill's like, a little to the left would be good. Wow. When you think about the uh, summary statement of Christianity the thing or the verse or the statement that we're probably most familiar with, regardless of where you are in this journey, you've probably heard this. It's interesting that the statement itself is so extraordinarily personal and it seems to ignore all the questions and all the, ob- all the objections and all the obstacles and all the emotional things that seem to go along with this conversation. The summary statement of Christianity, I would argue, is something that we find in the Gospel of John in chapter three in verse 16. And it goes something like this. Can me put it on the screen? For God so, what? Oh. God so loved. The introduction to Christianity, the introduction to this whole thing of, does God even exist? And what about the Bible? And what about creation? That's crazy. And the flood, really? The introduction is so intensely personal That the change comes in a person's life honestly, not when they get all the answers to all their questions. The change comes, hearts open, minds change when it dawns on you and it dawns on them and it dawns on us. God is so personal that he loves me. That's when everything starts to become turned upside down. That's when the lights come on. It's when the big obstacles get small. It's when you begin to be open to the idea that God loves you, that God knows your name, that God not only knows your name, but he cares all about you. And I'm telling you, when that dawns on you, everything on your list, including your really tough experiences that kind of fuel your objections, all of that finds its place kind of on the peripheral, and the objections get smaller, That's how most adults become followers of Jesus. God so loved the world that he did something. God so loved the world that he got involved. And today as we open the scripture together, I wanna take you back to God's very first involvement that ultimately resulted, or one of his early involvements I should say, that resulted in this thing that we call Christianity. The story doesn't begin with the appearance of Jesus. The story begins 2000 years before that when God decided to get involved in the story of humanity. Here's what's so cool about the story, that God got involved in a very personal way. And it's as if God illustrated how personal this whole thing was because he didn't come at us with a list of frequently asked questions with a bunch of answers that were all neatly packaged. He didn't send commandments. He didn't send laws. He didn't send instructions. He didn't send explanations. God revealed himself on his terms to one individual person. It was as personal as it could be. And in revealing himself to this one individual person, he did it in contrast to what everybody else in the world thought about God. Because God revealed himself to this individual at a time that people were much like us. They viewed God as some sort of cosmic vending machine. that you just had to figure out how many quarters to put in the slot or what secret code to enter in to get what you needed from God. So all over the world at that time, people sacrificed animals, they sacrificed their children, they sacrificed themselves, they cut themselves, they bled, they pleaded, they burnt offerings, they did all kinds of things trying to get God or the gods to do what they wanted the gods to do. We need God to bless our crops, so what do we do to get God to bless our crops? And somebody would come along and say, I think you need to do these three things in this order and God will bless your crops and they would try that formula. I need God to give me more children, especially more sons. And somebody would come along and say, well, here's how you get God to give you more sons. And the world was full of superstition. The world was full of kinds of crazy religious ideas. Families had their own combination of gods. Pieces of real estate had their own gods for that piece of land. There was all this confusion about who God was. And again, people's approach to God then is a bit like it is now. Because let's be honest we've all negotiated with God because if you're not sure God's hearing you you've tried bargaining yeah you've tried bargaining with God it's often done in the dark it's often done when you're laying in bed at night and your eyes are wide open in the darkness and you can't shut your brain off when we begin negotiating and bargaining with God right there's something in us that says well God here are my terms Here are my terms, God. Here's the way it works. God, here's what I expect you to do for me if I do this for you. God, I I want you to sit down at my bargaining table and don't say anything. Just listen for a minute. Let's see if we can get this deal worked out. And after you've put in enough quarters and after you've kicked the machine two or three times and you got the combination just right and you still didn't get anything in return, you turn around, you walk off, and you're like, this doesn't work. There's nothing to any of this. That's the kind of world that God interrupted 4,000 years ago when in the most personal terms, he appears to a man named Abram, who would become Abraham. Here's a story upon which Jews, Muslims, and Christians all agree. That God came to Abram, we call him Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm starting over. I want the world to understand who I am. The best way to start is with an individual, because that's the way I work, and I've chosen you. And we don't really know why it was him? We're like, because he was so righteous. Oh, we're gonna get to that. And God said to him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pack up your immediate family, which was very, very small, which was actually part of the problem. I want you to move far away from the rest of your family. Leave your extended family. Oh, and here's the implication we find out later when we understand the context. He, what he's really doing is saying, leave all your household idols and all your twisted understanding of God, leave it behind, because this is something new. I'm gonna do something big, I'm gonna begin in the most personal way possible. So if you have your Bible with you, you can follow along with me, I'm gonna read a couple passages real quick, just gonna hit them, jump to the next. So if you have uh, the Bible app, or just follow along on the screen, might be the easiest way, because I'm already at about 300 miles per minute here, so I don't know how to slow down, it must be the caffeine that I mistakenly ingested. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, this is how the story, uh, the story of Judaism first, and then the story of Christianity, the story that results in us being able to address God as father. This is how this very, very personal thing begins. Genesis 12 verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, grow from your country, that is leave, leave your people and your father's household and all your traditions and all your idols and go to the land that I will show you. He makes some three great promises in verse 2, all of which came true by the way said, so I'll make you into a great nation, which became the nation of Israel, right? And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And everybody listening to this message has heard of Abraham. You may not be able to tell all the story with all the details, but when I said the name Abraham, you're like, okay, familiar territory. This was written about 3,500 years ago, and it happened about 4,000 years ago, and everyone in this room has heard the name of Abraham. And you will be a blessing, We can talk about that, about how that happened. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, Abraham, I'm going to do something for everyone. That's big. But I'm going to begin with a person. Because the theme, the thread, the thing I want you to understand is that this thing isn't categorical. I don't want to just be like mystery God out there and good luck figuring it out. I don't want this to be religion. I want this to be personal. So I've started this whole thing with a conversation, with a person, with you, Abraham. And this is what gets me. Not because you've done anything right, Abraham, because Abraham had no basis for even knowing right from wrong. There was no law. There were no commandments. There was no revelation of God. So this is just a conversation. Three chapters later in chapter 15, the conversation continues. So Genesis 15, verse five, here's what happens. Uh, He, that is God, uh, took him outside and said, look up at the sky. Do I have that one? Do I have Genesis 15? Um, He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. Oh, I'm not even gonna try that, God. I mean, you can't count the stars if indeed you can count them then he said to him so shall your offspring be this is a problem because we don't know abraham's immediate thoughts or his immediate response but if he could if we could just kind of hit the pause button here for just a second this is a problem because abraham was old and his wife sarah was old and they had exactly 0 children and they'd lived their long, long life and their long, long marriage wanting to have children. And they had done everything they knew to do with their father's household gods to get the combination right and to get the right change in the right order in the vending machine. And all the customs and all the superstition and all the things that people said would guarantee that the gods would bless them with a child. And now they're an embarrassment to their family. Because even their, their servants are able to have children, but Abraham and Sarah have no children. So it's like God's playing with them saying things like, Abraham, come on out here, count the stars, try to count the stars. That's how many offspring you're going to have. To which I'm sure Abraham thought, but God, hello, we don't even have one child. And we're old, my wife's beyond childbearing years, what are we doing here? So if you're Abraham, you do, what do you do with that? This next statement, and I apologize for not putting it on the screen, but uh, it, it, verse 6, this next statement, this is the pivotal statement in, in all of the scripture, I think. This next little phrase is kind of a compass setting for all the rest of Scripture. And here's what happened, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord. Wait. Well, Abram, you can't just believe. Don't you have questions? There's a lot of gaps in this thing that God's talking about. Don't you need to grapple with your obstacles? I mean, what, what, about, and where and what about and where have you been? And, but this is huge. And if you, if you think you're never going to be able to cross the line of faith and you've got some friends and some family members and coworkers that you care about and they just seem to be stuck on their questions and obstacles, listen to this, it says, and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. This is so huge. There's no 10 commandments, there's no law, there's no church, there's no Bible, there's just Abraham and a conversation with God. And the Bible tells us that when Abraham said, God, I don't know how, I don't know how long, I don't know where you've been, But I believe that in that moment, God gave to Abraham the gift of righteousness. He wasn't having the conversation with him because he was righteous. Because of his faith, God gave him the gift of righteousness, the gift of a right standing with God. It wasn't about anything Abraham had done because he hadn't done anything have to go outside and refuse to look at the stars and try to count them, you know? The only commandment God had given Abraham was to go out and look at the stars and try to count them, which obviously wasn't to be taken literally. Abraham hadn't done anything. And God says, Abraham, as a testimony to the rest of the world and for the rest of generations to come, to get this thing kicked off, I'm going to give to you a right standing with me, not because of anything you've done, but because you made a decision with all of your questions and all the obstacles you must have, you made a decision to simply trust me. And Abraham still didn't know what was going to happen to his family and with all their household idols. And Abraham had no idea why God would allow him to live nearly 100 years with no child and why God would allow his wife to suffer the way she had and why there was all the suffering in the world anyway. And Abraham didn't have any answers for any of his questions. But in that moment when God said to him personally, I'm coming to you on my terms. I want you to respond to me on my terms. Respond, Respond to me as I actually am. I just want you to believe me. And the Bible says that Abraham trusted God, and God, in exchange for his faith, gave him, as a gift, a right standing with him. And that's how it's been ever since. The moral of that story is clear, that God comes to men and women, to humans, on his terms. And the relationship, the very personal relationship between A person and God always begins on God's terms, not ours. But if you think for just a moment and take all of your objections and all your obstacles and all your questions and set them aside for just a moment. I'm not saying they're not important. They are important. Don't let them go away. Don't just kick them to the curb. It's not a big deal. But let's set them aside for a moment. Let me ask you this. Isn't this what we would expect if there's a God? I mean, if there's really a God, the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and if God, the creator, actually knows your name, if there's a God who loves you enough to say, I want to start this thing off, and I want to take care of your biggest problem first. Oh, your biggest problem? It's not your mortgage payment. It's not your job. It's not your wife. It's not even your mother-in-law. Your biggest problem is your sin. I'm going to once and for all take care of your sin. So if there really is a God who says, I'm going to give you a right standing, with me based on your confidence in me, if there's a God that's that big, then wouldn't you expect that God to have the the right and the inclination to say, you know what, if we're going to have a relationship, it needs to be on my terms, not yours. Because our terms are the questions that we haven't gotten answered. Our terms are that thing that happened to us when we were kids, in our family, in the church, whatever. People betrayed you and misled you. Our terms are, yeah, but God, why didn't you answer my prayer? Our terms are, I put so many quarters in that machine, and I kicked it so many times, but I got nothing from you. Yeah, we got to work that out, God. Those are our terms. Our terms are things like suffering in the world, and my own personal suffering, and our terms are we read the Bible, and we don't understand it. Our terms are, but God, I don't get this miracle thing. Why for some people, not for me? We have all kinds of terms on which we'd like God to deal with us, but if he's God... Should we be surprised? Should we be shocked? Should, should we be offended that he would reserve the right to come to people that he loves on his terms, on his very personal terms? In spite of our questions, in spite of our obstacles, in spite of our objections. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he got involved, that he came to us. I wanna look at one other passage. and This is in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18. Jesus is teaching one day and it's recorded for us in Matthew if you don't read the Bible because you think it's boring or you don't understand it uh, man let me just encourage you to just start reading with Matthew if you read Matthew Mark Luke and John Mm -hmm. those are the you talk about the Bible and your issues with the Bible then at least you've read some of it right so um, I'm not saying it's going to answer all your questions but man it is some interesting reading Uh, it's fascinating it's the story of Jesus told from four different perspectives Um, and it's I just think it's fascinating the way that Jesus taught I I think the way Jesus taught and approached eternal truth is just so incredible. And his disciples, his closest followers, were confused a lot. So you're not alone. If you read the Bible and you read the words of Jesus, and you're like, I don't know what that means. The people who hung out with him for three years were often confused. So it's okay. Uh, And it's easy to make fun of them. Like, yeah, but you're hanging out with Jesus. You should know. But uh, it's... I think when I meet them in heaven, um, I'm probably gonna give them a little bit of grace when I come to acknowledge that you know I, I didn't understand either. They were constantly confused, though. I mean, Jesus was clear at times, and then there were times he was unclear. Uh, there were times when they said, look, Jesus, uh, don't, we got a question, but don't give us a parable, please, because we don't get those. We're not smart enough to understand those. We don't always know where you're going with that. We just have no idea what that's about, so would you just answer our question? So in one of those moments, they asked Jesus a question. And it's a question you've probably never asked. Because it's not exactly in our sweet spot. It's not a big one for us. I've never had anybody come to me and say, I would become a Christian, except I have this question. But it's a big one for them. They thought Jesus was here to establish an earthly kingdom. That was their interpretation of the mission of the Messiah. They thought Jesus was here to establish an earthly kingdom like at any moment he was going to just kind of whistle and angels are going to come down. He's going to overthrow the Roman occupiers. So these guys who are closest to Jesus, it becomes very apparent that, you know, any day now Jesus is going to let us crown him as king and we're going to get rid of the Romans finally. And those of us who've been closest to him, we're going to be set up for life because we're like in his inner circle and we've been following him and supporting him through this thing leading to revolution. So they're always wondering... So Jesus, we've been hanging out with you. We know you, we're the chosen 12. We get that. But which of us do you like best? <laughs> which of us is going to be your favorite? Think of it in terms of our system, where if you're involved in a presidential campaign and a high level, you're really positioning yourself for a cabinet position. Let's just be honest, right? So which of us gets to be secretary of state? <laughs> That's what they're asking. Or it's kind of like they're 11 years old and they're handing him a note. Am I your favorite? Check yes or no. You know? (laughs) These guys sat around and wondered about these things and they talked about it amongst themselves and we don't have that conversation because we're not in that context. But one of those conversations resulted in this incredible, incredible teaching. So let's go there real quick. Matthew 18. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Again, we've never asked that question. Your friends and coworkers and family members who are sitting on the fence with their list of obstacles, this isn't one of them probably. But in their culture and they're watching this happen, they're asking it like this, you know, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Uh, We want some answers. We want to know where we stand. In other words, who's the closest? Who's worked the hardest? Who's earned the right? Who do you look upon most favorably? Verse two. Without saying anything, he called the little child and placed the child among them. So I don't know exactly how this happened. But I imagine it happens something like this. They're saying, Jesus, who's the greatest? Who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We know it's one of us, 12. Which one? And there are all these people around and Jesus is like, I'll show you. Hey, buddy, hey, hey, come here, come here. And just stand right here in front of these men. Just stand here. So he's got this little boy standing there. You presume it's a boy, it might have been a girl, which would be, totally blow their minds. And all these guys stand around asking who's the greatest and maybe Jesus just paused. Jesus, hey Jesus, maybe you didn't hear the question you seem to be distracted right now. Hey little boy, we'll be with you in a minute. Which one of us is gonna be greatest in the kingdom? Did you hear us? We got a question for you, Jesus. Hey kid, you want a selfie? Let's do that in a minute. But right now we got a question for Jesus. See, if I were you, if you're on the fence, or if I were your coworkers or your family members or your friends and I'd experience the hurts and the disappointments that we've experienced and that they've experienced, the question I want to bring to God is a really, really good question. It's well thought out and it's complicated and nuanced and it's a very valid question. These guys had a valid question. Jesus, who's the greatest? And Jesus didn't answer. He didn't say anything. Instead, there's a little child standing there and they're waiting for a name. They're waiting for Jesus to say, you're the one. You're going to be my right-hand man, number one trusted advisor. And Jesus pauses and he waits and he says this, verse 3, he says, Truly I tell you, (laughs) what are the next three words? Unless you change, whoa! smart disciple guys, follow me around. Unless you change, oh, you, we need to do more. We need to jump higher. We need to keep some more rules. Tell us what it is. We need to be more holy. We need to go to church more. Is that what you mean? No, 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 no. Unless you change, become like this little child or become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So wait, 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 wait whoa. Rabbi, what about the Ten Commandments? What about, hey, we're faithful followers. No, just unless you change become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we think that's about what we think of heaven and the afterlife, it's not really what he's talking about. He says, you will never experience life as God intended it to be. You will never experience the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in. Unless you're willing to come to God, your heavenly father on his terms, instead of your own, you'll just never get there, there will always be an obstacle. And he says, unless you come on my terms, no matter how hard you work, You're never gonna get there. Then he says this, verse four, and this is the summary. Take the story of Abraham, you take this passage in Matthew, put them together, this is the summary, verse four. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there's a subtle, subtle, subtle little thread of pride that runs through these conversations that we have with God. There's a sense of pride that threads itself through our resistance to God. And if we were to peel back the layers and expose our pride, it looks a little bit like this. It says, God, you owe me. God, you at least owe me an answer. I mean, God, you owe me an explanation at least. God, you owe it to me that that shouldn't have happened. God, you owe me. I mean, I wouldn't say it that way, but you owe me. You need to sit down at my table and we need to talk about it. If you're really there and if you really love me, we need to have that conversation on my terms. Here's the deal. We don't even want a God that's that small. We don't want a God who thinks so much of you and so little of himself that he would deal with us that way. So in this incredible moment of teaching, built in this incredible moment 2,000 years earlier, we get some clarity about the terms on which God establishes a personal relationship with people. Abraham said, I trust you, even though I don't have answers to my questions. And Jesus says, you have to come with humility. So you've got to decide, God, I've got lots of questions and obstacles, but you, and you know that. But if you're able to be known, then I trust you and i'm going to come like a little child i'm not i'm not going to come on my terms that's not humility i'm going to come to you on your terms trust and humility trust and humility this is why this is so in- and extraordinarily important for those of you who maybe are toying with this thing, just sitting there on the edge, thinking about it and looking at it maybe still from the outside. This is why it's so important for our friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors that we care about who are honestly seeking truth and honestly seeking some way to relate to God, but they've let their questions and their issues with God become obstacles in their quest. This is why it's so important to begin praying, God, if you can be known, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. I'm not going to take my big unanswered questions, my past and my hurt and what my mama told me, my past religious tradition and all my obstacles. I'm not going to take those and set them on the table and say, God, if you don't deal with these first. Instead, I'm going to, as Jesus said, change. And I'm willing to set that aside for a minute. And you know how my heart is broken and how heavy these things are for me. You know how it's caused me pain. You know why I struggle. You know why it's hard for me to believe. But God, in this moment, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to all of my questions. It's another way of saying, God, I'm coming to you on your terms. I trust you, and I'm going to humble myself to take all this stuff that's been an obstacle and say, you know what? If those represent my terms, I'm going to lay them aside Because if you can be known, I want to know you. It's probably as far as we can go in our own finite little way of thinking. If you can be known, I'm willing to deal with you on your terms. Let me ask you something as I wrap this up. So what do we have to lose? See, for some of our friends and our family who are still on the outside looking in, there's this battle. And for some of you who are still on the fence, there's this battle. and and you talk to your Christian friend and you can just shred her with your argument and she doesn't even want to talk to you about Christianity anymore because you can out-argue her every time. But let's be honest. At the end of the argument, even if you've won the battle, when you walk away, it's not settled in your heart. You know why? Because God so loved you that he's not going to let it be settled in your heart. And you listen to your Christian friends and they give you the stuff and they give you Bibles and books and Stuff and all, and they, they try and they try and they can't answer your questions. And if they were to sit down and negotiate Christianity with you, they can't overcome your obstacles. But you know that even though their words bounce off you on the outside, there's an internal tension inside of you. Do you know why? It's because God it's because God so loves you, He's not gonna let the tension go away. And even if someone were able to answer all your questions and address all of your objections and your obstacles, that wouldn't instantly make you a Christian. That would just give you some more information, maybe a little bit more emboldening your resistance. But at the end of the day, the tension doesn't go away because God so loves you that he won't let the tension go away until you're willing to come to him on his terms. Then he's gonna do something extraordinarily personal for you and in you. So what do we have to lose? Do we want to spend another year or another season of our lives carrying around this tension? Because you got questions that nobody can answer? Do you want to let what a lot of people do and let that tension that you're feeling right now follow you all the way through your life? Something happened to you five years ago, ten years ago. You're going to, you're going to let that define how you relate to God for the rest of your life? Somebody disappointed you three years ago, 20 years ago, last week, and you made a decision about God based on that. Are you going to let that define your understanding about God for the rest of your life? Or would you be willing to say, you know what, for the sake of resolving this, I'm going to set that to the side for now because those have been my terms and God, I'm willing to come to you on your terms. I'm going to change my approach and I'm going to trust you and come to you with the humility of a little child I'm gonna trust you and for the first time I'm willing to say I wanna know you more than I wanna know the answers to all of my questions. That's how adults get over the hurdle. It's how adults come to follow Jesus. When that becomes a real personal encounter with the living God, listen, some of the questions get answered. Some of the hurt gets healed. Some of the obstacles get resolved. Some of the questions never get answered, they just get smaller because of something that's happened on the inside of us that's extraordinarily personal. Ben's band's going to come and get ready to play a song. I'm just praying for all of us who come and listen and talk about these things. And maybe you want to be there. You want to be like where I'm talking about. You want to have that kind of faith. You have coworkers who you know would like to have that kind of confidence going forward in life. You'd like to move beyond the hurt. You'd like to know what some of the people around you seem to know and experience the peace that some of the people around you seem to experience. You'd like to have that assurance and that hope that some of the people around you have. You just don't know how to get there. I just want to challenge you. Would you begin praying, God, I'm willing to come to you on your terms. I'm coming as a child. I'm coming with that kind of humility and I'll trust you because at the end of the day, I really do want to know you more than I need to know all the answers to all of my questions. And I believe God will honor that prayer because if you send a son to die for you, how passionate is he about you? How passionate is he about you knowing him the way that he can be known? Listen to this song.